I'm excited to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Hunt Club, the leading tech-enabled executive search firm. For Rick and me at Sater Grove, one of our obsessions is identifying and cultivating talent. Selfishly, it's one of the reasons we teach Art of Investing. The class allows us to get an unfair early glimpse at some of the best talent out there. But we all know the talent universe is vast and competitive, so beyond simply relying on our own networks, we've partnered with Hunt Club to assist us and our portfolio companies with all things search. Through its proprietary software and approach, Hunt Club is able to harness the networks of literally thousands of leading professionals to make warm introductions and personal referrals during a search. In our minds, gone are the days of relying on only one recruiter's Rolodex or on simply who's top of mind that week. By leveraging Hunt Club's network and technology, we've been able to unlock much more powerful connections, and we've been able to consistently find the right people for the right roles. So if you're looking to truly harness the power of networks with the ideal solution for all of your talent needs, visit huntclub.com AOI to learn more and get connected with our good friends over at Hunt Club. Hello, and welcome to The Art of Investing. I'm Paul Buser. And I'm Rick Berman. We're your hosts. Art of Investing is a series of discussions devoted to exploring the joys of compounding in all its forms. In each episode, our guests will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buser, are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Sata Grove Holdings or Sata Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Sata Grove Holdings or clients of Sata Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Our guests today are Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, founders of Acquired, the podcasting sensation telling the stories and strategies of the world's great companies. When I think of dynamic duos over the course of time, I think of Simon and Garfunkel. I think of Hall and & Oates. And of course, I think of Ben and David. These guys have been on an eight-year pilgrimage, shaping Acquired into an authoritative voice on every subject they choose to explore. As we'll discover, at the core of Acquired resides a beautiful friendship and the alchemy achieved by the mingling of Shakespeare-like storytelling and ridiculously rigorous analysis. In this episode, we turn the tables on Ben and David in order to discover their own stories and the fairy dust behind acquired success. We'll cover the history and facts of the formation of one of the most successful podcasts in the world, why having a co-founder and friend is so vital to building an enduring company throughout the inevitable highs and lows, and their most valuable lessons learned from dissecting the greatest stories in business, investing, and entrepreneurship from the colossal acquired library. We had such a fun time with these guys, and I hope you find our class with Ben and David as invigorating as we did. Come on. Woo. We are here with two very esteemed guests, Ben and David. Guys, when you agreed to do this, I know that we really highlighted how mature this class is. We're in our fifth semester teaching it, very established. What we failed to mention is that on the podcasting side, we are extremely nascent. I think a good way to put it would be that we are still very much in the bootstrapping mode of things. We don't even have a catchy jingle, but fortunately, my partner in crime, 
is basically a human beatbox. So with that, Paul, why don't you help to get us going here? Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? I think we might need a new version. I'm glad we're recording this. You all deserved a proper introduction, and that was the best that we could do. With that, I want to welcome everybody to The Art of Investing. We start our journey in the only way that seems appropriate, with some history and facts. And because our story begins in the mid-80s, in a small town in the great Keystone State of Pennsylvania, where a young David Rosenthal arrives on the scene. It certainly seemed like simpler times back then. Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds was top of the music charts. Bo Jackson had just won the Heisman. And Back to the Future ruled the box office. Now, for the four of us, if you want to feel even older than we really are, consider this, that part two of Back to the Future came out in 1989. Does anybody remember what year Marty and Doc traveled forward to? Wasn't it sometime recently, like 2015, something like that, 2020? It's evident that we're not going to be able to stump these guys on anything. Yes, it was 2015. Ben's already showing off his ridiculous encyclopedic knowledge. Fast forward a little bit to 2007. We're not going to go quite as far as Marty and Doc went. And let's travel to the campus of Princeton University, where a senior liberal arts major collides with a practitioner, Ed Shaw, in his class, high-tech entrepreneurship. Now, just around the same time and just down the coastline of Lake Erie, there was another non-business major, in this case at the Ohio State University, thinking a lot about business as well. And I'm talking about the Eagle Scout turned techie, Ben Gilbert. Now, we're going to want to put a pin in here and come back to the common links of two non-business majors pursuing entrepreneurship, very central to our class. But before we do that, I want to hand it back to Paul. There's only one problem with your slightly mediocre attempt at mimicking David Jay's usual epic history overview. We scoured the internet and other podcasts you guys have been on. And for being such prolific producers of material, there's nothing out there. We know we all saw this recent Fast Money article where you shamelessly plug your podcast. But guys, there's nothing on these pre-college days. And it's one of our favorite things to do in the art of investing is to just go as far back as you're willing to go on those really critical, we call them sliding door moments. It could be from when you're a couple of years old at Cedar Point, Ben, or who knows, maybe on the shores near Wilmington, David, you can share just what some of those really key moments were. We'll get into how you guys met and the friendship and why you guys didn't do business majors, which for art of investing is very common. We have 20 majors represented in the classroom. It'd just be a ton of fun for us to go back. And what were some of those early childhood moments that maybe nobody knows about, or that when you look back on the success you guys have had with Acquired, with this dynamic deal you've created together, what those big influences were early on? I can go first since I'm the elder statesman here. That's right. And keep the order in line. Also, you guys, that was impressive. Thank you for... David and I know the kind of time that goes into putting together scripts and researching. And thank you, all of you here, for being here. 
like I said earlier, 9.30 a.m. class. I'm sure we'll get into my college years. I had a tough time making it to those 9.30 a.m. classes. So thank you. I mean, I think for me, at least in the context of Acquired, undeniably the biggest impact of my growing up years was my parents, of course, but specifically about my parents. At the time, nobody would, and I didn't, I don't know that they would have considered themselves entrepreneurs per se, but they were absolutely, were and are absolutely classic American small to medium business entrepreneurs. They were, in the case of my mom, still is a practicing attorney. They were both lawyers in a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, one of the suburbs of Philadelphia. And they worked for large firms in the city in Philadelphia until I was about two years old. And then they left and they started their own law firm together in our little small town, just the two of them. They practiced completely different forms of law. <laughs> so the only commonality to the law firm was that they were married <laughs> and they have different last names. So it was Rosenthal and Gannisters, their law firm. It was a vehicle for each of them to control their own destiny, control their own lives. It was for better or for worse and mostly for better, very important to both of them to be extremely present in my life growing up. And that just wasn't going to happen being part of big corporate law firms in the city. We lived about 45 minutes outside of town. You got the commute, you got the law firm, lifestyle, all that. They did that before I even remember. I don't remember life of them working at these law firms. So they had their own business, which was a law firm, which was a services firm. That was my early years. And then when I was in middle school, I believe maybe early middle school, late elementary school, through a variety of circumstances, they got the opportunity to get involved in minor league baseball. And that led to a whole series of events, transactions, starting things that culminated in they, along with a few business partners, started something called the Atlantic League, which is an independent minor league baseball league on the East Coast. It's now also in Texas. And it ended up doing very well. And it had eight to 10 teams. We discovered something really strange later. I grew up going to Atlantic League baseball games, and I had no idea that David and his family were the, like part of the ownership group. I went to the Delaware Blue Rocks games growing up. Whenever the Kinston Indians, now I think probably the Kinston Guardians, if that team still exists, but whenever they would come to town and play, we would go because we lived in Delaware. David, we were probably in the stadium at the same time at some point. I'm sure we were. I mean, I went to almost all the games. Unfortunately, it sounds like this was at the time when both of you were too young to have a few beers and talk about your dream of building a tech M&A podcast. I was six. So yeah. This is the kind of stuff other folks in the ownership group, there were a few former Major League Baseball players. There were lawyers, dentists, small town America type stuff. But anyway, over time, that became bigger and bigger. The league became bigger. And then for my dad, at least, my mom was involved too. But for my dad, that became his primary thing. He retired from law. And I thought this was completely normal. I didn't realize that this is not most people's experience. And so for me, entrepreneurship, taking risks, and I think most importantly, especially for Acquired, and you'll see how this bleeds through to today, owning your own destiny, being a small team, being a tight two-person partnership with somebody you love, that just seemed normal. And the freedom that comes from that is immense. My parents got to design their own lives. 
do things like go to all of my high school sporting events, for better or worse. Go to many of my high school practices, which was a little weird, but things like that. Two things stand out to me about that story, David. And one of them is something we spent some time already talking to our class around, is just what to expect as an entrepreneur. And so when you have it modeled to you by your parents, that can be extremely powerful, even though it's maybe not even something that's actually proactively discussed as much as just something in the water. But this sense of it's very easy to glamorize entrepreneurship, but typically the formula is their trade-offs. Typically, when somebody takes a step like that, leaving a big established firm to do something on their own, it comes with an extraordinary amount of uncertainty that wasn't present in a prior career. And then the other component to it is just practically, and particularly once you start to have a family, just usually those early years, your compensation decreases substantially. And Paul and I have been on that journey ourselves. Now, on the other side of that equation is we talk about it like joy and freedom that comes, and that makes it sound like it's easy. It's not that it's easy, but there's a reason why so few entrepreneurs ever go back to more of a mainstream career. And it sounds like you got exposed to that. And the other dynamic that I'm thinking about is just the power of the co-founder model. Obviously, you look at the Y Combinators of the world and many other sort of incubators. And there's Entrepreneur First, for example. There's such a belief that there is power in building something alongside another individual. And I know we'll get to that with the two of you. And you can almost see the alchemy in hindsight that the two of you bring to acquire. I just think that's really powerful that you got that exposure early on. Absolutely. Everything he says is correct. One thing I just want to underline is, I think, again, because I was so young, I either didn't see or it didn't register on me the risk element of it. All I saw was the later years. After I'm talking to my parents now later in life, they took a lot of risk. They were sweating a lot during many of those years, but that didn't register. And so I just had then, and I still have to this day, this fundamental, perhaps irrational belief that things are going to work out. And I think I bring that to acquired here. 100%. That's part of why I think we're a good pair. Not that I'm a pessimist. I'm constantly looking for all the ways that something could go wrong. And you're just sure it's going to work out. And you being sure it's going to work out makes me more comfortable trying things that otherwise we wouldn't do. Well, Ben, maybe that's a good segue to you. Any experience or two uh, or influence in those pre-college years that comes to mind in this context? Yeah. I don't really like talking about myself. I don't really like talking about my story, which is probably why I get a little flutter in my stomach whenever I do this exercise, which is probably why it's not on the internet very much. I've been really into computers for a really long time. And a lot of that is because my dad, he was a software engineer or before that, I guess an electrical engineer because it was still an emerging discipline, but he was really into Apple. And so I grew up with an all Apple household obsessing about the company. He ran the Mac users of Delaware user group because there wasn't an internet. The way to get together with other people in the world who had affinity for the same things as you was these local groups. And so some of my earliest memories are going to these, they called them MUD meetings, Mac users of Delaware meetings, to see all the latest shareware that people were passing around on floppies and making presentations about why this new application for your Mac was going to change everything. And I've just been really into computers, specifically Apple computers, since then. The other thing I did a lot of besides Boy Scouts, which you mentioned, was theater. I did 12 plays and musicals in high school and sang in a lot of choirs. I remember 
I was getting ready during high school to do a career project, which dictated what your eventual application would be to college. And I liked advertising. I liked watching commercials. And so I started doing my project on marketing. I remember my dad having this conversation with me, which was like, you really like computers. Maybe you should think about something more technical. And at the time, I was also learning PHP because I was writing a website with my friend to share screen names, basically a website where you could log in and then see everyone's AIM screen name at our high school. And so I had learned PHP and MySQL and Linux sysadmin stuff. And he was like, you seem to really like this stuff. You should consider going to college for that. I ended up switching my major to computer science and decided to do CSE and then stuck with it through college, which I'm really glad I did. But I don't think I had the entrepreneurship bug similar to David. I knew I wanted to do something by the end of college, which combined business in some large sense and computers. But I think that what I thought that meant could be working at a tech company in some kind of business capacity. But again, I didn't have the language really until junior, senior year of college when I got involved in Ohio State's Business Builders Club to even articulate, oh, that could be starting a startup. That could be getting involved in the startup ecosystem, that sort of thing. One thing we got to double click on, Ben, is with all the theater you were involved in in high school, you were on both sides of the curtain, right? Before I got on stage, I was running the lights and sound booth, which it is actually quite shocking that all of this, what's the Steve Jobs quote? You can only connect the dots looking backwards. I get just as much benefit from the computer science degree as I do all this other stuff, the acting, performance, run of show, being the light and sound guy. I'm our producer for Acquired, so. The Steve Jobs quote is just so interesting in this context, even just these few anecdotes and where you guys are now, putting that in context. And this week you released, it feels like every time there's a release, it's another magnum opus. But the NVIDIA episode was just incredible. I don't know if any of the students have listened to it already, but for you to bring your CS degree to that and have it be just such a high quality output, it's pretty amazing. We have a few CS majors in here too. So maybe they know how to use CUDA or can dive in with you after hours. Rick and I do not have that skill set. I'm going to brush over that at a very high level. Ben did some machine language pseudo programming live on Acquired for the first time. We'll have to hear from listeners how it went over. It was an undertaking. I want to come to this point of Ben and David meeting one another. I think I read that it happened, maybe it was around 2014 at a Passover Cedar. I think maybe Ben, you were already at Madrona. David was getting ready to join. And maybe just talk a little bit about your earliest memories of meeting one another. Before you do that, though, I want to read an excerpt from one of my favorite books called The Four Loves. And it was written by the polymath C.S. Lewis. For those of you who are not familiar with the book, really what Lewis is trying to do is deconstruct the concept of love and define it really within four categories where love resides, one of them being friendship. And he says this about friendship. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share, and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. We can imagine that among those early hunters and warriors, single individuals, one in a century, one in a thousand years, saw what others did not. Saw that the deer was beautiful, as well as edible. That hunting was fun, as well as necessary. 
dream that as gods might be not only powerful, but holy, or that podcasts could be both riveting in their storytelling and wicked smart in their analysis. That was obviously my contribution. But as long as each of these percipient persons, by the way, percipient, I had to look it up, means perceptive. But as long as each of these percipient persons dies without finding a kindred soul, nothing I suspect will come of it. Art or sport or spiritual religion will not be born. It is when two such persons discover one another, when, whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate rumblings, or with what would seem to us amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision. It is then that friendship is born, and instantly they stand together in an immense solitude. That is an incredible quote. Will you send me that after this? I've never had the words to describe that thing. That thing being, there are so many things in the world where David's the only possible person I could text about it. And not because it's acquired related, but because this is something that connects three dots that I care a lot about that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And the only other person that I know that would appreciate it in the very same way is David. We could just end the class right there. That describes Ben and my relationship to a T. And I think it actually was true seven, eight years ago, even before Acquired became Acquired. Maybe not like the first time we met, but as we got to know each other, it was like, oh, this person is weirdly also into internet nostalgia. And then you're like, okay, this person is just a lot of different things. As we kept getting drinks and hanging out and becoming better friends, I think there were a lot of things where I was like, oh, there are other people like me. I think connecting it back to the power of co-founders. And really, I think friendship is so often at the center of, not always, but very often at the center of these really profound movements or companies that are built. I think it almost always, if not always, is at the center of co-founding relationships that last. There are many great co-founding relationships that don't last, and then the company goes on to become great led by one of the co-founders. But when you look at the ones that last, the Berkshires, etc., I can't think of a single example where that C.S. Lewis quote isn't true. My impression of the origin story, from what I could detect, is I know that people from Pennsylvania don't like to be considered Midwesterners. I consider myself a Californian these days, so no offense taken. Two non-West Coasters hanging out in a Seattle, probably, if it were in the Midwest, it'd be more, probably a pub on Seattle. It's probably some swanky high-end bar. Having a few drinks and... Ben is just rattling off. I got this idea. I got that idea. What about this one? And you're like, wait, tech M&As? Now, clear up the story for us and fill in some of the spaces. I had two ideas for podcasts. David, my recollection, tell me if you remember differently, is I was not proposing that we do them. It was more like you and I would get together and talk about ideas. And I definitely kept this scratch pad of ideas for blog posts and quick apps I could build over the weekend. And I think two of them were podcasts. And we were talking through the list. I don't think I was pitching you on let's do this together, but you were so intrigued by one of them, not the other where you were like, yeah, that's a bad idea. But this one, you were like, that's such a good idea. If you want to do that, I'll do it with you. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, I mean, the guest just was so long ago. We've lived so many lives since then. It was February of 2015, and then it took us eight months to actually produce the first episode after that, getting drinks. What it really was, a high-end swanky bar in Seattle. <laughs> Fake nostalgia bar. Yeah, masquerading as like an old saloon dive bar in Pioneer Square, which everything in Seattle does. But yes, it was very high-end. My recollection of, and again, this may or may not have any bearing on actual reality because so much life has been lived since then. But my recollection of the conversation was 
we were talking about this, you were talking about these podcast ideas and the other one, which we can talk about that we didn't do. I do agree with you. I think I probably thought it was a bad idea. The other one, I don't know if I thought it was good or bad, but I was just like, I would love to do this with you. And this is a great thing to do together. I don't know that I thought too much about it being a great idea or not. I think it was at least a good enough idea. But really, the motivation was like, oh, we get to do something together. Hell yeah. There's a project that could be ours. I definitely remember that being the main draw. Rick and I, we've thought about this because we've been teaching for nearly 15 years. We've gone all in on Art of Investing now alongside managing Seder Grove. I don't know which one's the side hustle (laughs) at certain times, but how did you guys think about this? You're trying to be venture capitalists. You got this idea. We've talked about friendship. This is way easier if you find someone you can do it with. But what was that like having a side hustle? And we have this crew of 21, 22 year olds around. What are the lessons of that? And Rick, he's quoting C.S. Lewis, and it's because he did a degree in theology on the apologetics alongside doing an MBA. I had a fascination with public policy. That was always a side hustle for me. What are the lessons for you guys in terms of either the multidisciplinary approach to life or just really you're running hard as a venture capitalist or a lot of our students are going into computer science or investment banking or private equity. There's not a lot of time in the day to do this stuff. Just riff a little bit on that. What's that like to make sure you have side hustles? Was this just a random occurrence or were you guys seeking this out? I have two trains of thought on this. And I think they're both worth exploring. One, it's important to clarify, I was not trying to be a venture capitalist when we started Acquired. I would say I wasn't for years later. And I think David and I had pretty different career ambitions, which is why we never really thought about Acquired as, could this be the thing? Because when we started, I was working in a startup studio. For years and years, probably four or five years, there was no thought that this could be the thing. And my goal was to become a founder of a venture-backed company. And over the years, that has changed. I'm no longer interested in doing that. It took me a long personal journey to realize that. And with that being the mark on the wall of, okay, I'll eventually learn enough in doing this startup studio work to go start and run a company of my own. And I like doing acquired enough on the side to keep doing that. And I keep learning and it keeps growing my network. There's all these great reasons to do it. And I get to keep hanging out with David. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, David was a venture capitalist at Madrona with the dream of breaking out and starting his own firm. So it's very strange that over the years, what has actually happened is David became an independent angel investor and I became a proper venture capitalist. But I think part of the reason why we gave Acquired as much running room as it did as a side project was because David and I were on such different pages for the longest time of what do we want to do that all we could attend to this with was a notion of a side project because this wasn't for the longest time the thing that either of us actually wanted. And it took us doing it for seven, eight years to be like, oh, this is really what we want. We really like building this small business on the internet together. We really like this thing that grows slowly but steadily and compounds at this great rate. We really like producing super high quality content. We really like being able to tell these stories. It took at least five years before we were like, oh, this is a viable business that could actually be the thing. So that's train of thought one. It took probably two or three years before we even conceived of it as a business at all. Totally. Train of thought two, let me do this and then we'll come back and talk about both together. I think it's really important. Again, everyone's circumstance can't support it. But in my life, it has been really important to always be doing a side project. And every single job I've ever gotten 
was because of the side project I was working on concurrently with my previous job. When I was a student at Ohio State, I was also building apps in my free time. The thing that got me the job at Microsoft was the apps that I was building in my free time in the early days of the App Store that happened to go viral and get front page on the App Store and get millions of downloads. That was the thing that got Microsoft interested in me coming and working on productivity apps for them, not my resume. My resume was fine, but it wasn't cream of the crop or certainly my GPA and my transcript. The thing that got me my second job at Microsoft running the garage was not my first job. It was, there's lots of people who work at Microsoft. Why should some 23-year-old get to run this cool program? It's because I'd been facilitating startup weekends on the side while working at Microsoft. And then the thing that got me the job at Madrona Labs, building startups inside of a venture capital firm, was not the fact that I ran the Microsoft garage. It was that I was actively pitching Madrona, trying to leave Microsoft, building startups in my nights and weekends. And they were finally like, just come work for us instead. And Again, this circumstance was really unique because I was young, single, and was willing to work an insane number of hours. This was my passion. And so I always wanted to be exploring something. Yeah, you didn't think of the side hustles as work, did you? No, that was just my hobby. It was building apps or doing podcasts or whatever. In those early years, particularly as you started to ramp the amount of time you invested into it, I'm just curious, what was the reaction from others around you? And maybe this is a generational thing where I think more and more today, companies are appreciative of the desire for employees to have side hustles, et cetera, or to be more than just their one job. I know even when we were teaching in our prior lives, there were some on our team that just thought it was a waste of time or that that was a distraction, I think would be a very common response. I'm just trying to envision, particularly in those early years when it was not clear that this was going to be much of a thing, and yet you were putting more and more emphasis into it, were, were there tensions involved that you all had to navigate? Yeah, totally. I'll answer that, but I want to jump back in and add one thing to the previous question first about just the side hustles in general. The first thing, Rick, when you asked that question that came to my mind was, Last year, we did a series on Benchmark Capital, the venture capital firm. And as part of it, we got to do a dinner with them, with the whole partnership. And Peter Fenton, who's just a truly unique character in the world writ large and in venture capital, one of the greatest of all time, he said something during this dinner. We asked them, the partnership, hey, you're Benchmark famously, you're this equal partnership, small team, you don't have anybody else, but you have a principal. You have a junior person who works for you. His name is Blake Robbins. He's public on the internet. You've had other principals before that. Everybody knows this. You don't talk about it, but everybody knows. What's the deal with this? Peter looks at us and he says, the great American philosopher, I think this was Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, once said that forced consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. And we try and live by that principle here at Benchmark. I was just like, I can't believe you just said that. But so true, as I've thought about it more, it definitely applies in my life, my career. Every time when I've thought that I was or should be singularly focused on something, there was one goal that I had to attain. I was working to this specific vision of the future. Those were always the moments when I was most unhappy and least successful. So having multiple things going on in life, in career, like Ben said, not everybody is in a position where they're fortunate enough, have the resources to be able to do that. But if you do, so much magic can come out of it, at least in our experience. This is also not unilaterally true. I think a lot of the protagonists we study on Acquired were singularly focused, and that's why they were outlierishly successful. 
have to find your own path, I guess, is the right lesson from this. So to the, did people think we were crazy? At least in my case, absolutely. I don't know about you, Ben. Maybe you could share some stories too, if so. But so many people over the years, in the early years, no, nobody said anything because nobody listened. Nobody cared at all. But then there was an awkward teenage phase of Acquired where it was getting bigger. It was taking more time. We were putting more effort into it. It wasn't obvious what it was going to be, at least to anybody except us and really not even us. And nobody in the venture or startup ecosystem was doing a podcast. It wasn't a trope yet. Now there's some associated every venture firm that's like, we should start a podcast. And the partners are like, great idea. That'll help build our brand. You should get out there and go do it. That was not in 2015, 2016, 2017, the school of thought at all. Yeah, I would say even up until the pandemic in 2020, I would say those years, 2017, 18, 19, for me at least created a lot of conflict. People being like, what are you doing? You're wasting so much time. This is ridiculous. And then meantime, from my experience, I went from Ben to what his was, I was experiencing on a daily basis this massive shift of my whole identity to what I was saying before about singular focus. And for me, it was, I want to be a venture capitalist. This is what I want to do in life. And during those middle years of Acquired, this shift started happening where I thought I had this incredibly high status job of being a VC. I gone and started a new venture firm and all this. I was living the dream. And this weird thing started to happen. I would talk to people. I would meet people, meet entrepreneurs that were pitching us, whatever. And they didn't want to talk about the fact that I was a VC. They only wanted to talk about Acquired. <laughs> and they'd be like, you're one of the Acquired guys. Oh, my gosh. I just listened to your Uber IPO episode. What you guys do is so great. I remember you telling me you were feeling pressure to downplay it in those meetings. Yeah, yeah, but let's get to the part where I'm a VC and you're a founder and you get to pitch me your idea because that's what we're supposed to be doing here. It was entrepreneurs. It was other people were reaching out. LPs were reaching out, other great VCs, like just all sorts of people, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, and they just wanted to talk about the podcast. And so that's when I started to be like, oh, I've got these other people in my life saying that this is a waste of time. But then my lived experience is vastly different than that. My only thing I'll add to that is to directly answer the question of doesn't it cause conflict to have something on the side? I think the pattern between all of my side projects is that it was always additive to the job. And that's why I got a lot of leeway to do it. Starting all the way back at when I was a PM at Microsoft building Office for iPad, and I was the guy writing the specs for how the ribbon's going to work on Office for iPad and how text selection is going to work and the word for iPad when it comes out. Very entry level PM stuff, but on a very cool project. The fact that I was flying around the world and running all these startup weekends earned me a lot of credibility of how do people build things in a very different way outside of big companies. And the same with the fact that I was building apps on the side. I could walk up to an engineer and say, I was playing with this new set of APIs that was released at WWDC. And have we thought about a collection view instead of a list view? Those experiences made me better at my job. And I think that translated all the way through. To this day, me doing investing in early stage startups is so massively advantaged by Acquired. The fact that 300,000 people listen to every episode means I get tremendous access to high quality information about the topics we're studying. And usually the topics we're studying are in markets where there's also interesting startups being built. So I think your side project can be a force multiplier on your day job too. One qualifier I would add though, and particularly thinking about those early years before it was apparent that you were building this juggernaut that would 
creates so much value even for your employer is the question of time horizon. And we're going to talk a lot about the compounding interest equation and how you drive real duration. And I think, Paul, I don't know if you have the acquired episodes by download chart that just shows the exponential growth that really doesn't start to look like much of anything until about five years in. No, it does. The chart always looks the same. It's just that the axis change, the early years look like nothing. 2018, 2019, I think it could be a fair assessment for people to say, oh, that's great. It was a pretty interesting. I promise you, if you look at this chart in 2019, you would have your exact same reaction right now. You'd say, whoa, this thing's grown really fast. Look at how steep the line is recently. But the question is really when the value accrues and does the time horizon of those around you match the time horizon that you have? And I think particularly with exercises like this, where really what you have been doing is over the course of the last decade, compounding extraordinary knowledge and relationships, that just takes time. And it's always those out years where it becomes so obvious to everybody that you are now a singular source of value for fill in the blank. And the concept that sometimes, and quite often I think as individuals, just forget investors, but just as individuals, the ways in which we're trying to invest in ourselves, the time horizon could outstrip the time horizon for those around you, including say an employer or others saying, what are you doing? Because sometimes whatever you're doing actually really isn't that rational if you're only looking at things with a three-year lens, for example. It's only when you're looking at a 10, 15-year perspective where it's like, oh my gosh, if I just keep at this, and David Senra likes to point this out, whether it's studying great athletes like Kobe Bryant or great entrepreneurs, it's that commitment over the course of extraordinary amount of time that leads to this advantage that can never be taken away in a sense, or others can just simply not catch up to the volume of knowledge that you all are building here. And part of that is that exponential curve. I just think it's important for all of us, and particularly, I think, when you're headed out into the workforce, to just be very aware that oftentimes the interests and or the time horizon of those around you just might differ. And sometimes that's completely okay. You just have to acknowledge it. Other times it could actually become an impediment that you have to respond to. For us, or for me at least, the athletics analogy is a really good one. For most kids, not all kids, but I think for most kids, when they start playing sports, when you're really young, it's not because you think you're going to make it to the NBA or be professional in that sport or even go to college and play. It's because you like doing it. The kids, you love running around kicking the soccer ball or something like that. And that was the case, but I don't want to speak for Ben, but for me, those years from 2015 through to 2018, 2019, we did it because we loved doing it. That was the motivation. Combining this chart that we're all looking at with those comments reminds me a lot, Rick, of our recent conversations with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on the idea of just compounding and the compounding equation. And students, you're, by the end of the semester, you're going to get sick of hearing this. We're going to continue to tear apart what should be a very simple equation, especially for someone like Ben, who's delved into computer science in much more complicated ways. But if you simplify it, there's some sort of base. And the way we, Patrick and we talked about this was discovering your X, which there's P times one plus R, but essentially the base of the compounding equation, finding something that has some growth rate and something that you're spending your time on that you like doing. And then there's the N, 
there's the number of time periods. And the way we talked about that with Patrick was you want to nurture your end. Because when you look at all the best companies that have that growth path, and you guys have mentioned this in the context of, say, an Apple that's compounded for 40 years. Now, it's the one unicorn and it has a really high growth rate and a lot of years. But over a long time period, the number of years always outweighs the growth rate. And it's the most important thing. So we want to flip this on you guys and just say, how do you react to this? How do you think about the compounding equation? It's really interesting. You're right. But what is it that drives you? Now you're working, according to these articles, I don't know, 150 hours a week on this. And how sustainable is that? Why the heck do you find this so joyful? For Rick and me, it's inspiring. And for our students, there's a lot to learn here about how you discover or find that X or the base of the compounding equation and then nurture that N so you can keep doing it for a while. It's funny, I was having this conversation over dinner last night with a friend. One thing that I think gets lost a lot in this conversation is making sure that you are actually playing a game that has intrinsic compounding. And we got lucky that podcasting is that. There are a lot of people who do things that look like what we do. For example, making long Twitter threads about the history of businesses that actually doesn't really compound. And there's a variety of factors. What I specifically mean in this instance is every time somebody listens to Acquired and they like it, they subscribe. And that means we have a direct relationship with them where they are actually subscribed to our RSS feed without any middleman. This is a little bit different on Spotify these days, but we're very fortunate as content creators that platform functions effectively in the same manner. We also... We try to provide a lot of carrots of why people should give us their email address so we can maintain that direct relationship. I have been shocked how much the compounding has worked in podcasting, where every time we produce a new episode, there is some new base that, because of the previous episodes, it will certainly get, no matter how high quality the episode. I don't know what that base is, but let's say right now, new episodes, good episodes get 300,000 downloads and the base is like 200,000. It's pretty crazy that we've built this asset where it's impossible not to have distribution no matter what content we drop to 200,000 people. That is super different. Yeah, we can make a really bad episode. Not that we plan to. And that's the fear. That's the thing that I keep in mind every time is we're only as good as our next episode and don't really trust this chart in terms of telling us about episode quality. David and my internal metrics are very different because this chart can lie to us. What can show up, it's funny that each of these data points are labeled. That data point there is labeled Amazon or Enron. Actually, what it should be labeled is the cumulative sum of all of the work you did until Amazon, but likely not including Amazon. And Amazon will really only show up in the audience we've built between Amazon and the next one. There's a huge part of the success of Acquired that I think, honest to God, is luck, that the game that we are playing happens to compound very well. And to go back to the Twitter thread maker example, there are people with hundreds and hundreds of thousands or millions of followers put out a bad tweet, doesn't get picked up in the algorithm, no response. No matter how much work they put into it, it's just one of these games that the intrinsic thing that you're building doesn't necessarily compound in the same way. It doesn't translate to a business too. Even if you only put out banger tweets, you play the algorithm perfectly and whatnot. There's just no way to build a durable, intrinsic business on that platform currently in the same way. Let's move this away from content for a minute and say venture capital. Venture capital doesn't compound. 
you're only ever as good as your next deal. Brand is very important, but this rounds to true. Compared to if you're building a SaaS company where every new customer, let's say you have a SaaS company and you're really good at net retention and customers tend to buy more from you over time. Every cohort of customers you acquire is going to, as long as you do all the right things, stick with you, grow revenue over time, and you keep performing business activities and your enterprise value grows because you can predictably continue to grow revenue because all your business activities lead to increasing the overall enterprise value of your thing. And I think that's super different than if you wake up every morning as an investment banker or a venture capitalist, something where you're in a transactional business where you're only as good as your next deal. You made a great investment. Awesome. How does that help you make the next investment? A little bit your brand got better, a little bit your network got better from the previous one, but it's nothing like stacking revenue in a SaaS business. It's nothing like more people are now subscribed to my RSS feed, so therefore the next episode is just going to get more listens. There are certain games that compound and certain games that have some compounding elements, but it's not severe. Ben and I joke sometimes, if you were to disaggregate the value of acquired, how much of it is... Ben and me in the episodes we make and how much of it is the asset that is our subscriber base on our RSS feed. (laughs) And that answer is impossible to know. And I actually think the majority of it is the episodes that we make. But there is no doubt that the element of the compounded over now eight years and hopefully will continue to compound for many years in the future. If somebody were to make an identical episode to us and put it out on a brand new RSS feed and we were to put out the same episode on our RSS feed, we would win. We would dwarf them automatic. There is value to that compounding asset. And the same thing, if we have someone on and Joe Rogan has someone on, no one is aware that we had them on. There's always a much bigger fish than you. A wise man once said, when a manager with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, the reputation of the business remains intact. And that man in Omaha is quite wise. One more quick comment on this, at least in our case, what this makes me think of is, is what you're doing a commodity or not? And what we're doing is fundamentally and luckily not a commodity. You can build great businesses in commodity markets, but harder, I think, to develop this compounding nature. Paul and I talk a lot about choosing the right battlefields. And what's interesting in your context, it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of consideration on day one that really what we're trying to do is create this wedge within podcasting because podcasting is going to be a wave. At the time, it was probably very hard. You might have had some hypothesis that podcasting was going to grow, but it certainly doesn't seem like it was at the centerpiece of the decision to begin to build. And yet, over the fullness of time, these are just remarkably important dynamics to a successful business of any kind. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that. Now, that portion or some portion of the luck that goes into a successful enterprise It very much has been a part of the continual set of decisions over the years, though, to continue to invest and to double down on it. You start to realize you get immersed into something and you start to realize, oh my gosh, I see something that nobody else sees because it's staring me right in the face every day. It becomes that earned secret that you have. The flip side is there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people doing podcasts that have not been able to garner not just the audience, but really just to captivate their own minds with what they're doing. And so There's all these ingredients, and it just comes back to this very basic, I don't know, entrepreneurship 101, that if you're willing to do the hard work, luck will find you more often. Luck favors the prepared mind. Is that Louis Pasteur, or am I mixing two quotes there? 
Let me just massively underscore the value of luck here. We started a podcast because I really liked listening to podcasts because it was a thing that nerdy Apple people did. Yes, it also comes back to the Apple connection. I wanted to be like other people who were doing podcasts like John Gruber. And I thought maybe if I start one, I can be like them too. And I don't think that there's any guarantee that you doing something because it's a nerdy, passionate thing that you like will lead to a big market or a job that you could do full time. There's a lot of weird survivorship bias here where the takeaway I don't think is go find something that looked like podcasting in 2015 that you're irrationally passionate about, even if no one else cares and do it because surely this will happen. I want to make sure that's not the takeaway, but that is what happened for us. Raise your hand if you know the term survivorship bias. All right, it looks like about half the class. There's this great web comic called XKCD, where there's this guy standing on a stage with a bag of money, and he says, never stop buying lottery tickets, no matter what anyone else tells you. I failed again and again, but I never gave up. I took extra jobs and poured all my money into the tickets, and here I am, proof that if you put in the time, it pays off. Just because we had one path through the multiverse, it is not predictive or causal of what your path will be. Learn from these stories, but don't put too much weight in exactly how it went. I think this is where the set of, we've spent a lot of time on the origins, the lore, and all this. The reality is how we started, how this all ended up here, the original motivations. That was one half of 1% of it. It's the sum of the decisions along the way. Like you guys were saying, it was the set of decisions where we decided at every step function there, we're going to up our effort. And that was informed by what was happening. And strategic business model choices. We're going to have this particular business model work with these particular types of sponsors. We're going to test this experiment, but sunset if it fails. We became strategic over time. You're right. It's not just we let the original insight run and we became more obsessed with quality, which I think is always a takeaway. If you just are obsessed with making the very best of something in the world and you just are willing to do unreasonable things to produce something that you think is just awesome that has to pay dividends. I don't know exactly the shape of the curve, but I don't know. I'd trust that. No, you sound like a young David Senra. High praise. I do want to just underscore this concept of motivations. And it is really, I think, telling that at least initially, nowhere in your motivations was, hey, I think there's going to be a big pot of gold at the end of this. In fact, I think you have some very explicit goals. Learn about the stuff that we want to learn about build relationships with guests on the shows, listeners who participate in the community and each other, and build our own reputations within the startup tech community. I look at those goals as sort of, and we're big Jim Collins buffs, and these are very timeless. They're very powerful, and they're all intrinsic. And again, maybe it should have taken only a year for Acquired to really quote unquote take off, or maybe it should have taken longer. It seems to me, at least, that you had the appropriate motivational jet fuel. And I'm just curious, is there anything that's not captured across those explicit goals? Any other motivations that you all had that are important for the story? We've since adjusted this as it's become a more important pillar of our lives. But for years, when David and I would do our summit, we'd get together and do a summit every six months because we thought we were very important capital B business people. We would restate these goals and we would say, explicitly, there is a fourth thing, which is a non-goal, which is to monetize it. Even while we started monetizing it, we were like restating that so that we didn't accidentally make that the goal and sacrifice the real reasons we got into it. I think also those goals, we haven't talked about this, I don't know if you'd agree with me. I think there's a new number one goal 
for Acquired that has been for at least the last few years, which is make the absolute best content possible. And to me, that's always the number one goal and everything else falls behind that. And it's because we already have distribution so we can simplify the business and say, now the goal is just make the most incredible product we can. And we have some distribution, so we know that distribution will magically happen for us. And we can sort of trust because we've observed it enough in the past through word of mouth that we'll continue to grow distribution is product-led growth, basically, by making the most amazing products possible and making it possible for people to share those with their friends that good things will happen to us. So now we have this luxury of being singularly focused and obsessed on product. It's great to hear that you're taking the lessons from your hundreds of podcasts and diving deep into the best quality companies and then applying it to yourselves. I know, Rick, you want to jump in with a couple student questions. We've delivered the soft pitches, all right? Now we're bringing the students to really test and challenge you. The first question relates to just how you stay authentic to yourself and to one another in the midst of this exponential success. When that is starting to occur, and it feeds into something Paul and I, particularly as we used to formally write case studies on great investors who were able to keep it going for several decades, one of the greatest impediments, it seems like, to compounding stems from all of these challenges that come with success. A failure takes care of itself, but when you start to find success, lots of weird things can happen. And maybe you guys could just riff on that, particularly in the last couple of years, as this is basically like Beatlemania with the two of you. Now it's in a niche. There's probably people who want you guys to jump out of their birthday cake. How are you dealing with that success? It's funny. It doesn't happen to me at all, just wandering around my neighborhood in Seattle. But whenever David and I are together, we have to take measures. It is weird. We were walking through Soho in New York, and we got stopped four or five times while we were just out getting coffee. And in an elevator, actually, in New York, it was just someone happened to be in an elevator with us and was an acquired listener. It was like, oh, my God, is that Ben? It gets uncomfortable. That was a real moment for me, at least, because usually these things happen. We're in a context where, oh, it's tech or investing or you know, business. Okay, it makes sense to me. But this was just a random elevator in New York City in a hotel. So we're in the early stages of that, which is still the fun part. You're asking two different questions here, which I think one is, how do you not let money change you? And two is, how do you not let fame change you? Acquired has not been successful enough for money to change David or I. We will cross that bridge when we come to it. I think that's a very real question. I know lots of founders who sell their business and then suddenly have this weird thing where they've been defined by work their whole life and now they never need to work again. And what do you do? And that is a crazy thing to stare in the face. And I think that causes hopefully a lot of therapy in the best case scenario. The fame thing is a little bit of a different one where right now it's just fun to use it in every possible advantage that makes a... And I'm using fame as a shortcut here because we're only famous on this particular corner of the internet. We're not movie star famous, but it makes all the things that used to be hard easy. It's the way that product market fit shows up in our business, where when I'm meeting with a founder who I want to invest with, a lot of the time now, they've listened to the podcast, they like it, they have reverence for it, and the conversation is extremely easy in a way that before I was on my knees begging, will you please believe that I'm something more than the commodity capital I'm selling because you're out there and everybody wants to invest in your company. And so to be honest, it's totally changed me because these things are easier and more fun now in a way that's different than it used to be. It's also, we have definitely, I think especially in recent months, used it as a tool to make the show better. 
we got to talk to Ian Buck, who is the GM of the data center segment at NVIDIA for our most recent episode, just on background, on research. And the NVIDIA story of the last 18 months is the story of the data center. We got to talk to the person there running that. That would never have happened even a year ago. I think for me, the answer to this question, I hope we can stay true true over time, but at least for right now, that everything's got to be in service and making the show better. And what if we start getting distracted with too many things that don't make the show better, then that's when some of the failure case can start to creep in. David, you and I have a mantra around this. I think mantras are really important. You and I say that in a rhythmic, almost religious chant to each other, and we'll bring each other back to earth. For people who are wondering what David and my working relationship is like, we do our research separately, but very often, besides that, we are wandering around our houses on AirPods for many hours a day talking about the business and our content and what's next. And a lot of the time, someone will have an idea and the other person will repeat to each other, nothing matters unless we're creating the very best content. It brings us back to earth and it recenters us in truly a chant-like way. I want to stick with a little more discussion around the acquired process just advice on doing great research and what have you found, what have you discovered about the process of Scuttlebutt to get to the point where your output, I think it's fair to say that many investors, when you have an episode drop on a company that's relevant to them, it's almost like the acquired podcast on that company becomes this essential thing that needs to be listened to at least and evaluated, then probably there's some sources that you use that they need to go back to. It reminded me, we hadn't really talked about the sort of secret sauce of Acquired, again, apart from your schoolboy charm. The way I look at it, and tell me if it's wrong, is it relates to one of Peter Kaufman's frameworks on alchemy. The way he talks about it is the coming together of copper and tin to create something like bronze that's more resilient. In this case, you have both this sort of mesmerizing storytelling component, and then this very rigorous, very detailed analysis that's appreciated by some of the world's best investors as just being extremely robust. Would you say that probably an oversimplification, but those two components just seem to come together in a way that is drawing a lot of people to want to make sure that they listen to everything that you distribute? That accurately describes the product and then the question is, what goes into making the product? And there's a whole bunch of obvious things that I think are skippable just for time. We read every book on a company. You read the Wikipedia page. You click all the links from the Wikipedia page. David has this great thing where he goes and clicks on and uses weird search like Boolean operators to find certain YouTube videos of industry talks that don't have many views but say interesting things. Actually, right now, currently, out-of-print books are our superpower right now. Just be willing to spend $500 for a book. Why not? If you get insight out of that, that's worth Because it's worth 5000 after we release the episode and mention it. The biggest thing that I think metaphorically I think about while researching it, it always seems to come true. Our research takes about a month. When we first start, it's usually scary because every time we're reading something new about the company, we're discovering a new little piece of the world that we didn't know exists. It's almost like you're trying to map the world, but all you know is your current little square and the rest of it is there's nothingness and you need to go explore and figure out if there's something over there or not. And as you start to map the world, it continues to be terrifying because you're like, oh my God, there's this whole other thing that happened in the 80s that I completely forgot about and now I need to become an expert on. There's this 
short seller today who has this really compelling case of maybe this thing isn't real. I know the company's talking a big game about it, but how can we get better? What Tegas calls can I listen to from customers or what people can I network my way to figure out what the real story is there? It keeps getting more and more daunting. And somehow this always seems to happen in the last three or four days before recording. It's almost like the world seems to be expanding and I'm like trying to get my arms around it and it's growing and growing. And then at some point I feel my fingers touch around the backside of the world and I'm like, oh, cool. Like I've got the whole thing now. To use a computer analogy, it's all stored in CPU cache. It's in very short-term, quick-trigger memory, and I don't have it organized in a useful way. And so then the next few days becomes about trying to take all these random facts that I've learned and things that I'm aware of and intuitions that I've developed and put it into logical buckets and store it in a script that I can read, at least for my portions on air. But there is this magical moment sometime in a few days before recording where you're like, I've consumed so many articles and talked to so many people that every time I read an article now, there are zero or one new things. There's not like five new things. I'm getting the same stuff over and over again, such that I can feel confident that I have the story now. And that is this rush that happens every time for me when we do an episode. Rick, you're so right. We are the combination of story and analysis. That's the magic. Story without analysis is interesting but useless, and analysis without story is boring, and so that a lot of people aren't going to consume it. Marrying those two things together, I think, has been a very much the secret sauce for us. And practically, we have an incredible division of labor. I write the story, Ben does the analysis, and we don't talk about it before we record. We stumbled into that. We talk a lot about the logistics and structure of an episode, but when we record, when we come together at the recording session, the magic happens live. It's not like we've already discussed the whole episode. That has been a huge piece for making the show compelling. One more question, and then we're going to save some Q&A at the end as well. Just this elusive combination of achieving the extraordinary as an entrepreneur or an investor or really anything professionally and winning in life. I think that might have been a quote that came from you in reference to Saul Price. And interestingly, Saul was one of the few that David highlighted that actually seems like he was able to achieve both. He talks about a lot of the people that he studies through history as cautionary tales. And I'm just curious what you've learned about pursuing that entrepreneurial path that lends itself to an obsession and lends itself to being extremely one-dimensional and yet trying to achieve the good life for simplicity, let's call it the good life, in parallel, not necessarily just from the study of all the entrepreneurs that you've looked at, but also how this feeds back into your own stories. I think for this particular question, I would take Senra's answers more as gospel because he really focuses on the people and we focus much more on the company. The people are important, but the secondary, we spend less time on this. My answer is what I know from my direct experience with Acquired. For me, at least again, going back to my parents, the example they set for me, freedom is so important to me. Ben can talk about whether it's important to him too, but we've structured what we're doing here in a way that enables immense freedom. We have no shareholders other than the two of us. We have no employees. We have an audience that in some sense we're beholden to, we've set an expectation with that we need to live up to. If we were to say, you know what? People want us to cover the Louisiana Purchase. That's like a meme in Slack. We could do that. We can do whatever we want. 
because we haven't structured this, we have no venture backers, we have no shareholders, we're not a public company. There's no plan we're trying to meet. Quarters whiz by and we don't notice that they ended. We can structure our business relationships in whatever ways make sense. That's a huge part of this too. For certain sponsors who are big sponsors of the show, if they ask us to do an event with them, we do it free of speaking fees and say we're happy to come do it. But contractually with a sponsor we're working with, we've redlined CES because David's on a family vacation that week. We just run it like a family business. These are amazing learnings. I know for Rick and me, it resonates a lot where it's just the two of us and now our partner, Greg, but just super simple team and approach. And we often think about this. One of the friends of Art of Investing, Will Thorndike, always just inspires us to think rationally for the long term. He frames it in the context of capital allocation, but we've just taken out of that. It's rare to have a setup, a temperament, a partnership that allows you just to do what you think is right. The constellation of all the factors involved, how important it is with a little one, David, to have family time or whatever it is you need to block out. And maybe this is a good transition to the next part of Art of Investing for today, which is lessons from the acquired playbook. For those who haven't listened to it, you guys did an amazing job a year ago at Capital Camp outlining a number of these. And Rick and I wanted to dive into a few of our favorites. And one of these is this idea of don't be the talent, own the business. And we're hitting on a lot of that right now, but can you just say more about that and what that means for a 22-year-old? What can you do with that if you almost nobody is actually right out of undergrad starting a company and owning a business? Some are, but if everyone's going to not be owning the business right off the bat, what are the lessons for young people on this? My big one is before you can act on any insight, being aware of the insight has value. And I think the insight here, although it's not what we originally said in the playbook at Capital Camp, is anytime you sign an employment agreement, the company is making a profitable trade for your labor. It's not really true at startups because startups are so speculative. Companies have no idea how much money they can make off of your contributions to the company. They're either making an incredibly profitable trade or losing a lot of money. When Microsoft hired me out of college, they paid me, I can't remember what it was, maybe $90,000. And the expectation was that I provide far more than that, or at least on average across their employees, since they generate profit every quarter, there's a profitable trade being made off of the labor of employees. And that's fine. That is how capitalism works. But once you become aware of that, then you can sort of look at the rest of your career through the lens of, do I ever want to capture the surplus that I'm leaving on the table? When you sign an employment agreement, you have capped upside, which that might be great because there's all sorts of things that come with capped upside, certainty, predictability, benefits. And for 99.9% .9 of people early in your career, you are actually getting an incredible trade out of that because you're getting experience, context, learning, network, mentorship out of all of that, which is for you going to be a profitable trade. And then for most people, at some point, that equation flips. It's trying to figure out when you are starting to feel like, actually, I'm no longer willing to trade the surplus here. I want to figure out how to capture it for myself. And you guys mentioned at the top of the show or at the top of class that you might go negative for a while. That almost certainly has to happen where there's risk involved in doing something entrepreneurial because 
corporations are an unbelievably awesome structure to smooth out lumpiness for all the people that contribute their labor and time and human capital. It's very uncomfortable, and there's no certainty that it's going to work out once you do take that leap. But I think the insight going all the way back to the question of don't be talent, own the business is when you study the very most successful people, the Taylor Swifts, the Oprah Winfrey's, they are their production company. They are the CEO of their business. Yeah. Again, survivorship bias. We are studying people who are four plus standard deviations from the mean of the distribution here. And it's always dangerous learning from people who are in the 99.999th percentile of what they do because going back to survivorship bias again, there is always going to be someone in some category who is four standard deviations from the mean. And just by doing what they did, it doesn't mean that it's going to work out the same way for you. But there's always someone you can cherry pick and try and reverse engineer their strategy. I think there's also a particular relevance of this in the media business too. And again, not for an average media talent, it might be a profitable trade to be an employee essentially of whatever media company, distribution company, production company, whatever, to not own the product. But in almost every case I can think of at the highest levels, you're going to do much better, especially in today's media world, owning what you produce than you're going to do by selling what you produce. We're going to jump to my personal favorite. And by the way, there's, I think, 12 of these that were released last summer. We're not going to get to all of them, but I really love this one. And it is probably the simplest, which is just that optimism wins. And I love this for a variety of reasons. It reminds me why Paul is such a great partner in crime here. He's without a doubt one of the most optimistic people that you'll ever meet. And I'm continuing to just be astounded at the things that happen around us where he's just like, oh, that's good. We'll find a way through this. It'll be fine. We're at a point in time where culturally there's just a lot of negativity. There's, I guess you could say there always is in the world, but I think there are legitimate sociological reasons why cynicism and skepticism and negativity tend to seem like they're ruling the day. Paul mentioned Will Thorndike. And one of the great gifts that Will gave us that we try to pass on to all of our students as required reading for our class is John Gardner's essay, The Road to Self-Renewal. And it's something we come back to time and time again. I just want to read a little excerpt because it makes this point. He says, for renewal, tough-minded optimism is the best. The future is not shaped by people who don't really believe in the future. Men and women of vitality have always been prepared to bet their futures and even their lives on ventures of unknown outcome. If they had all looked before they leaped, we would still be crouched in caves, sketching animal pictures on the wall. But I did say tough-minded optimism. High hopes that are dashed by the first failure are precisely what we don't need. We have to believe in ourselves, but we mustn't suppose that the path will be easy. It's tough. Life is painful, and rain falls on the just. Mr. Churchill was not being a pessimist when he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He had a great deal more to offer, but as a good leader, he was saying it isn't going to be easy. And he was also saying something that all great leaders say constantly, that failure is simply a reason to strengthen resolve. We cannot dream of a utopia in which all arrangements are ideal and everyone is flawless. Life is tumultuous, an endless losing and regaining of balance, a continuous struggle, never an assured victory. Nothing is ever finally safe. Every important battle is fought and refought. You may wonder if such a struggle, endless and of uncertain outcome, isn't more than humans can bear. But all of history suggests that the human spirit is well fitted to cope 
with just that kind of world. I don't really have any additional questions or commentary around this besides the fact that one of our core values for Stater Grove is that love wins. And I would suggest, and you may disagree, that actually the reason optimism wins is because optimism in a sense is tethered to the broader construct of love. But I do think that time and time again, and maybe some of this does come back to that whole question of duration and time horizon. There's a lot of short-term strategies. There's a lot of ways to win over the short term by taking a different approach. But it does certainly seem to suggest that when you look across history with the fullness of time, staying on the side of optimism is part of a winning formula. This is the story of, I think, all the world's greatest companies. NVIDIA is top of mind. We just released part three of us. This is the story of NVIDIA. This is the story of Jensen Huang. He was the only optimist left in the room so many times, even over the last 18 months. And look at what they've done for the world for computing, for their market cap. They're what, the fifth most valuable company in the world now? Just within the last 12 months, they lost $500 billion in market cap. (laughs) I don't think that's ever happened before. And yet they're back stronger than ever. It's been a very compressed timeline over the last 18 months. But that story has played out three or four times over the 30-year history of that company. And Jensen never wavers. Talking about get the partners you ask for. One of our close friends and mentors is Mitch Rails, co-founder of Danaher Corporation. And one of their key values and principles is we compete for shareholders. You guys have commented on this before in the Fast Company article. You mentioned when asked who are the listeners to the show, Mr. Rosenthal says, I perceive our listeners to be Ben, somebody who's highly educated in business. He's super smart doesn't appreciate when things are dumbed down, actively recoils at it. 90% of business content out there is worthless to that person. They actively want to learn, get better, grow, and build great things. You guys also said at Capital Camp, we're obsessed with the idea of treating our audience as smart. It's not the fastest path to growth, and we're unabashedly weird about it. But now, and this is six or seven years into Acquired when you said this, we ended up with the people we wanted, and we took our time cultivating that crew. Can you guys just comment a bit on this? And again, what's the lesson for someone who's maybe built some friendships in the dorm the last few years, but is going out into life? You have time to pick your friends. In your case, in our case too, at Sater Grove, we spent inordinate amounts of time thinking about our shareholders and the people we want to spend time with. What has that meant for you guys? And maybe even throwing some mistakes too, where that hasn't worked out so well. As you go out into the world as a student becoming a young professional, I made a joke earlier that David and I were capital B business people. I often recall leaving college and going to a job and thinking, I got to put on my big boy pants, go tuck my shirt in. Like I tucked my shirt in at Microsoft into jeans. It was weird because I thought that's what people did in jobs. Also, Microsoft in the era that you were there was a funny place. It was a funny place. It was between eras of greatness. And there will be many times where you hear people using jargon that you don't understand. So you start saying the jargon so you can fit in or people that act a certain way. And you're like, I guess this is how the industry works. So I'm supposed to act this way too. I'm supposed to perform these activities. And whether it's golf or nightclubs or showing up to work at a certain crazy hour to beat the boss to meetings, whatever it is, There are cultures that are going to feel to you 
I guess this is what people do, so it's necessary. And I would just say it might be tough at first, but when you choose to continue to be yourself and don't morph the way you act and the way you talk and the things you say into something disingenuous that seems to fit the puzzle better, over time, you will attract the people who want to work with you in an authentic way that feel like they could be your partners, that feel like they could be your David to me, Ben, of, wow, I really am just vibing with this person because we're speaking the same language. We both feel like even though others in our industry act this way and say these things, we think that's stupid. Let's just go do our own thing because the common vernacular or the common way that people talk about this thing is just something that feels off to me. So let's not do it. It is really fun to find your tribe. And I think by acting the way that feels authentic to you and not conforming to some set of norms, it's easier when you have a microphone on the internet for your tribe to find you, but eventually your tribe will find you in the fullness of time. Especially for you all in college now. On the one hand, I think this concept has never been harder to live and go through. I don't know what inning we're in of the internet now, but it's not the first. And there's so much pressure out there on the internet, on social media platforms to be like everyone else. Even creators at the highest levels, we still get all the time. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this like other people? There's pressure to be like everything else out there. You could grow more if you covered more current companies. You need to publish more often. You only publish once a month. We've got people at Spotify telling us this. You got to make a prediction. You got to put a flag in the ground about what's going to happen in the future. You got to cover emerging technologies. Why don't you work more with startups? All these things we've chosen not to do. Totally. And that's just us. But as a person on the internet, an individual, and then it's business activities, that pressure is just intense. And because of that, it has also never been more true that doing your own thing is the path to success or the path to differentiation. And differentiation is becoming increasingly rare because of that. Man, is it hard. It's hard. And a lot of people will think you're stupid. You'll make a lot of enemies. We've gotten to know Doug DeMiro. We did the Porsche episode with him. He's the largest independent car YouTuber out there. He's got about 5 million subscribers on YouTube. One of the biggest YouTubers in the world. And we talked a lot about this with him. He's like, the rest of the car industry and the car reviewer industry, they're all obsessed with the fastest cars, the biggest horse, all this stuff, the driving experience. And if you want to fit in the car community, that's the stuff you're supposed to talk about. That's the stuff you're supposed to talk about. And he's like, I'm some idiot in shorts. But what do I do? I review minivans. I review family SUVs. Why? Because people buy those things. And the rest of the community out there thinks that I'm a black sheep, right? I'm doing something different, but he's bigger than all of them. Like I said, never been harder and never been more true. There's so much that's possible now if you choose your tribe, because you guys are connected to 300,000 people, and that's a small fraction of the 7 billion people on earth. But through media, you've been able to organically grow that. And one other playbook item I wanted to bring up is from Honam. We're going to take it in a different direction, though, because of what you just talked about. You guys had said, don't mistake options for cash flow. Essentially, there's a multi-stage game when you're doing venture investing. And you want to build good relationships and realize that when you're digging into a company, you're getting to know someone. It might be the third company that they start that's important. Or it might be the fourth time that you re-up with them that they finally figure out what's going on. And Ho is one of the best at this. 
He happens to be coming to class in a couple of weeks, so we'll dive in deeper. One of the statements that he and his co-founders have mentioned to us and others that has really influenced us on this discussion that you guys were just unpacking is the idea of circle of competence. And the way that Altos Ventures and Ho and his team defines this is your circle of competence is the companies you invest in. And the first time we heard this, we laughed thinking that almost seems like a tautology or just too simplistic, but now we can't get away from it. It's completely true in our minds that the more you dig into something, the more it becomes your own, the more it becomes the thing that you are competent at. And you have to start somewhere, but it's really hard for anything else to meet that bar. By you guys saying, we have a way of doing this and we have a circle of competence and that is growing and it's deepening. I think it's just really profound and it's inspiring to us the way that you're talking about the design of Acquired and an additional team member or someone other than Ben doing the editing and he has this earned secret from his early days. Now we found out it would take away this magic of what your competencies are that you're building. Those are just some reactions, but would love for you guys to comment on how that might be influencing you in the future. Because like you said, this is only going to become harder and harder with a bigger platform. And this is the case for all of you students and for us building our company now. That temptation is always there on the horizon to do something that's outside of that competency you're building. There's a couple things here. The first is on the iterated game, this idea of the multi-stage game. It shocks me how many times I come back in contact with someone that I previously had thought, hopefully I never see that person again. You will always see that person again. So you should keep that in mind in all of your dealings. There's a great quote that's never put something in writing that you don't want printed on the front page of the New York Times. At the end of the day, I think, especially in this era we live in, Never take an action that you wouldn't want printed on the front page of the New York Times. Again, it makes some things harder because you can never take a shortcut. You can never win this deal at the expense of the far future. It means you can't use a lot of cheat codes, but there's a different form of compounding that shows up with integrity and always acting above bar and always trying to be an amazing partner and always trying to treat people with the utmost respect. It ends up feeding into earning amazing partners over time in anything that you're doing, I think they're actually the same thing. And there's so many examples of what we had in mind of Ho specifically about this, of people are not options and you shouldn't treat them as such. There's so many examples of people who go on to do great things, start great companies or whatever, who had a major failure in their life, or even people who were part of teams or doing things that didn't seem impressive or that went awry, or they were just a lowly employee at some middling whatever. You're a VC on the board of that company, and you can feel like, God, this is a waste of my time. I hate this. I just want to shut it down. And actually, maybe shutting it down is the most humane thing to do, but doing it in a humane fashion where you never know. It could be some second most junior person at this middling startup goes on to do something amazing. They're going to remember how you treated them. And with the passage of time, we're all seeing it in our careers. And it's a huge benefit, too, to the extent that you do treat people well and you do take the long game. You've got this army of relationships and people that want to reciprocate and such a great lesson. All right. One more from the playbook, and then we'll move on to the acquired MBA section. Let your winners ride. Maybe one of you can just provide some context for this lesson, and then we can, I think, have a healthy back and forth. This is another cherry picking one. I've been harping on this more recently because I've been feeling guilty that 
we pick these lessons from the most successful companies and people in history and try to generalize them or imply that they could be generalized. So let me say for the thin slice of companies that have become trillion-dollar companies, holding them was the right move. And that sounds tautological. In our talk, we demonize Sequoia Capital and selling before the IPO their share in Apple and only making a mere $6 million, which I think, David, was a 60x or something or a 30x on their something great on their investment and made sense at the time for lots of reasons. Oh, my God, if they had just held Apple's now a $2 trillion company, blah, blah, blah. To the extent that you believe that something you're invested in has a tremendous amount of compounding in it, you should orchestrate your life such that you can hold it forever. And you should orchestrate the vehicle such that you can hold it forever. And probably the majority of the time, that's not true. Being able to understand what type of asset you own should determine how much you should let your winners ride. In some ways, there's wisdom in this. and In other ways, it's an immensely frustrating statement to hear because you're like, how do I know? And I don't know what to tell you there. You should talk about this with Ho and Altos. Ho has great thoughts on this. And there's nuance too. Like part of the way you do that is you do need to sell over time because you need cash for your life at various points in time or your business. Or your shareholders. Or your shareholders. And so Altos has been, of all the folks we've studied, the best and most thoughtful that we've found around how to do that while still also having the optionality of letting your winners ride too. Yeah, and this is exactly where I think we were going to go, just connecting it with the creativity that Altos has had with figuring out how to, in a handful of situations, maintain holdings for well over a decade, and how I bet if you dissect their total return, it's just so disproportionate to a handful of these winners. And by the way, this whole power law dynamic that I think is commonly accepted in the venture community, we think it applies to the public markets too. There was the research out of Arizona State, I think probably, I don't know, five, seven years ago, that suggested that over the course of the last 100 years in the US stock market, really the sum total of all returns was generated by less than 5% of companies. Then the question is, how would you ever over long periods of time outperform the market? And I don't know exactly what the answer is, but it has something to do with you need to have a disproportionate ownership for a disproportionate amount of time in some of those companies. To quickly validate your point, in last year's Berkshire letter, Buffett has the quote about their success has been the result of about a dozen truly good decisions, one every five years. This is Buffett. This is the ultimate value investor is talking about the power law of his investing. It's the temperament for sure, just being conditioned to be able to more and more embrace concentration. But it's also Ho's point on circle of competence. If you really believe with humility that the things that you've, whether they're investments or anything else that you've lived with for the longest amount of time, you have some sort of differentiated insight in and you embrace that, then the natural output of that is further and further concentration. Maybe no better example than Mitch and Steve Rails, whose 40 plus year record with Danaher is actually quite a bit more compelling than even the history of Berkshire Hathaway. It's applying that principle orientation with a structure that accommodates long-term concentration and holding periods. And like Ben said, some of that has to do with the proposition that you have with your shareholders. Our friends at Sequoia, a lot of GPs at a lot of these venture firms actually have held on to every share of some of their best winners personally. It's not a function of having a different point of view or having a right point of view for a company and then deciding now is the time to sell. It's external pressures that typically with these great investors leads them to move on. By the way, this is an interesting point in time where 
a lot of the maneuvers that Sequoia has made with attempting to move in the direction of more of a long-term vehicle, the jury's out. But let's go revisit that in 10, 15 years, because it could be really interesting to see what might become unlocked over a few decades of having of that kind of talent matched with a vehicle that really is purpose-built for the long-term. To me, this really all comes down to, as always, the brilliant Charlie Munger insight of show me the incentives and I'll tell you the behavior. We feel this so deeply at Acquired with our structure and our shareholder base of just me and Ben. There's full alignment. The principles of the business, the shareholders, the talent on camera, we're all the same. It's impossible for us to get crosswise across any of those three things. And often, I think when you see these poor decisions happen, it's because of misalignment. In the venture fund example, this happens all the time of you have a big winner, an early hit. Take that Sequoia example. I think that was Apple was in their second fund, maybe either the first or second fund. They need to prove themselves, right? They can get liquid, get a 60x on that investment, 2x the fund, send that cash back to their LPs. Great. Maybe they're missing out in the long run, but they're getting in business. They're going to raise that next fund. Totally rational at the time. There's a temperamental aspect and a structural aspect. And it's fun to unpack this, and especially for the students here to know that there's no right answer. But we are firm believers that you have to align the incentives across your life, whether it's the way you just think it's the structure of a firm you're building or you're part of. Because in this case, yeah, there's the 60x. What do you do when a company is 90% of the assets of a fund or the output in venture funds typically are 10-year life or maybe a little longer. So you couldn't see the 40 years no matter what, even if you wanted to hold on. So there's this aspect that you have to get the structure right and the temperament and the competency. And I'll leave you on this point with, you guys are all in on acquired. That's a 100% position for you. This is really strange. Entrepreneurs all deal with this but the fact that it's only the two of you, you have venture funds, other investments, but the vast, vast, vast majority of your time, as that compounding curve grows that we showed earlier, this is going to become a bigger issue. But for you guys, it may not. You're all in. As someone who sees it from the inside, I'm a buyer. And so is David. So we're going to stay 50-50. <laughs> I don't view this concentration as a problem. We are moving on from the playbook. And I think what we're going to do is just Let's take a handful of classic sort of MBA curriculum, and maybe you can share any tidbits you have from your learnings from Acquired. And the Charlie Munger, nothing to add on a particular topic is a perfectly okay and acceptable answer. Let's start with leadership. Again, it's a big topic. We could go in different directions, leadership in crisis or cautionary tales versus more heroic leadership. But anything stand out to you over the course of studying so many great businesses in the context of leadership? I think, and again, David and I researched the world's most successful companies. If you were to ask me about a family gravel business in Tennessee, I'm not sure if this would apply or not because I've never researched it. And you better bet that there's 10,000 more family-owned, mid-sized businesses in America than there are NVIDIAs in the world. So again, we're cherry-picking. But almost all of these outlierishly successful businesses have an organization where the personality and culture of the organization is a direct extension of the founder themselves. There's no dilution. It's Apple is Steve Jobs. NVIDIA is Jensen. Meta is Mark Zuckerberg for a very long time. We'll call it Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg. David's on the record saying that Mark Zuckerberg's just a dude. Real quick digression. 
the most powerful thing for me when I was in business school and being at Stanford in Silicon Valley was these people, the actual protagonists would come and they would come to campus, they would come be guest lectures, and then we'd have lunch with them afterwards. And it wasn't that I got to meet these people, they don't remember me, but it was, I just could be like, Zuckerberg's just a dude. These are people. I can do this too. There's nothing special about them. They're not magical. They're not chosen ones. But my point is that they have constructed organizations that are just massive force multipliers on their will. There isn't design by committee. The best way to think of Apple in 2007 was it is Steve Jobs, as if there were lots and lots of him with lots of capability. That has weirded me out. It's a superpower of organizations that continue to be founder-led, that haven't handed over the reins yet, is that singular vision and focus and element of control. It's impossible to detangle the person from their creation. And I think this is one of the most, for me at least, one of the most exciting aspects of being an investor, right? Because you can study business models six ways from Sunday, but certainly in large swaths of investing, some kinds of investing, this doesn't apply. But the kind of investing we've been talking about all day, you can't avoid getting into the soft elements of studying the human condition and these individuals that are, as you point out, just so unique and singular. And that can be challenging just even to access, to understand who these people are and what the motivations are, et cetera. But it's also such a fun part of the job. Getting your arms around individuals, there's usually a handful of these key people. I just want to be on the record to say, Mark, if you're listening, I know you're not, but if you are listening, I think you are more than just a dude. Okay. One thing I want to add on this, which is a David Sedner thing that he said recently that's really stuck with me, and I think is true in all great companies we've studied. And also, this is not talked about as much in today's current culture, but I think it's as true as ever. All these people who are building the world's greatest companies that are doing these things, that are the most valuable, that are changing the way to all this stuff... They are the Genghis Khans of our era. There is a fire in these people, and it expresses itself very differently. But if you're Jensen Huang, if you're Daniel Eck at Spotify, if you're Taylor Swift, if you're Oprah, these people, there is something about them that's not just a guy or a girl. There is a fire and a desire in them that they are going to scorch the earth behind them. It manifests in very different ways, but it is a, truly a commonality. One more topic I can't not ask you about, and that's the essence of the original idea of Acquired. What have you learned about M&A? After all this time, do you have anything to impart? One is the same power law thing that works in venture funding or now in public markets. Most are inconsequential or entire failures, but the ones that work can work really well. Instagram, they turned a billion dollars into probably $300 billion of market cap in that acquisition. It's astonishing. The second one is you can only save so much money, but there's infinite upside in revenue generation. So acquisitions that are done for cost-saving reasons, how successful those are going to be, they have a cap. But anytime that you're acquiring something that opens up a new business opportunity for you has the potential to go extremely well. So when you look at, we did this top 10 episode, the top 10 acquisitions of all time, and we need to go redo it because there's a handful that we probably need to put in there, including LinkedIn has been pretty unbelievable. Almost every single one was about creating net new revenue, not about synergy or consolidation. Yeah, one thing I had that's a recent one, actually, lesson for me from the NVIDIA episode. I think we used to say, especially early on in the show, that the best acquisitions were the old Facebook-style acquisitions of, oh, acquire and then let it still be its own standalone product thing business. And I think that's mostly true, but I think there's a wrinkle to it that 
there's often in these cases where things go really well, most of the thing stays the same, but the acquirer can add something that wouldn't be there otherwise had the company stayed standalone and independent. And what we realized, or at least I realized for Facebook acquiring Instagram, that was AI and machine learning that Facebook was able to add to the feed of Instagram. And a business model. And Instagram generated zero dollars and they... But Instagram could have built hired ad people and would have taken longer. They probably could have done it on their own. They could not have added the level of machine learning AI talent that Facebook had. For meshing cultures is almost impossible. If you have two really strong cultures that are not similar or aspirational to be each other, it's over before you even do the deal. So it's a big one to be aware of. I often look at Disney and Pixar as this pretty amazing success. And recent years for Pixar haven't been as good as years past. But the animators at Disney went there trying to be Disney animators of the early 90s. And by the early 2000s, that sort of culture was gone. But that old Disney existed at Pixar. And so by acquiring Pixar, it was almost like all the people who went to Disney trying to be a certain thing got to do it again. It was almost like a reverse acquisition. Apple and Next, same thing. All the people who were at Apple wanted to be at the old Apple, which was Next. It's an amazing place to finish on where it all started, that very first episode on Disney and Pixar, huh? Our final section, it's always our favorite, grading. And one of Rick's and my favorite book is by Hamilton Helmer. It's called Seven Powers. We're not going to go through all seven powers, but we'd love to hear from you. Which of the seven powers... Does acquired exude the most? What's your biggest moat? You just talked about NVIDIA having these unassailable moats. So what's that for acquired? And then where are you paranoid? Which one of the seven isn't there? What's the biggest risk on the horizon for you guys? The thing that keeps me up at night is switching costs. There's pretty low switching costs to anybody going and deciding that they want to do something else with their time. And the paranoia that I live with is every minute of content we ship is a churn opportunity. It is a time for somebody to dedicate their valuable time to us and trust us and for us to burn them. And so we just can't ship minutes that are amazing because we are always wildly susceptible to someone deciding to listen or read something else. And as Eric Schmidt said in a tongue-in-cheek way, because he knew that they weren't susceptible to this, competition is just a click away. And the reason it's tongue-in-cheek is for Google, when he said this, there were not viable competitors. So sure, competition was a click away, which nobody was going to go use a different search engine because they were all bad. For us, like honest to God, there is so much amazing, great stuff out there. The competition is just a back button away. David and Ben, just want to thank you not only for your time today and just being willing to be open and provide a level of intimacy into what is certainly one of the most important topics in the two of your lives, but also just the ways in which you're devoting yourself to be in service to others. You are just creating so much value to so many others. And certainly we are beneficiaries of that as are our students. But I think about people just all over the world who would otherwise never have access to this quality of analysis and storytelling. Keep it up. We're rooting for you. And thanks again. Thanks so much, guys. So much. Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, check out staygrovey.com. That's stay, G-R-O-V-E-Y.com. That's it for now, and we'll see you next week. 